0: How's that? You guys hear me all right? Is that better? Okay. So yes, before we get started today, uh, just take a look around you uh, to see if you have a Bible in your pew. Um, we want you to have the Word of God open uh, as we uh, look into our text today. If you don't have a Bible at home that uh, is easy to read, please feel free to take that home with you as our gift. And the reason I talk about Bibles near you is as every preacher that comes before you at this church will say, I have nothing of value. I hope you did not come to hear me speak. Uh, My job as preacher is simply to refer you to what is in the Holy Bible uh, and ultimately drive you there uh, so you can look at that on your own. Picture with me. You are on your way to Wendy's for lunch, and the traffic light turns yellow. You apply the brakes and gently bring your vehicle to a stop at the intersection. And as the crossing traffic begins to enter the intersection, you look over, and instead of seeing cars or trucks, you see a ragtag group of men covered in dust, broken spears, shattered helmets, running through the intersection in desperation, and one of them appears to be wearing royal robes. You quickly give your head a shake and say, whoa, no more late-night pizza for me. And then you glance over again, and you see a shining army with spears raised, chariots racing through the intersection in pursuit of the first ragtag group. Have you ever seen this? No, not me either. Uh, As we get into this passage this morning, we are going to read more about a deposed king being viciously pursued by his enemies. And we must answer the question, what relevance does Psalm 3 have for me? After all, I am not being pursued by my enemies through the streets of olds. And I am glad that you've asked that question because I can tell you, As much as Psalm 3 is David's story, it is also our story. Before we dive into our text this morning, let us take some time to meet this pursued king. Psalm 3 is the first of 75 psalms attributed to David. More has been written about David in the Bible than any other biblical character with 66 chapters of the Old Testament devoted to him, as well as 59 references to David in the New Testament. David is the second most mentioned biblical character. Jesus is mentioned 1,310 times in the Bible. David's name 974 times, followed by Moses at 803 times. David wrote some of the most famous and best-loved passages of Scripture of all time. I'm sure you will all recognize the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures from the 23rd Psalm. Or his words of contrition in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Countless verses from David's Psalms reign as the most loved verses of Scripture, but also many of the stories of David's life are some of the most enduring stories of our time. David will forever be the star of innumerable flannel board presentations in Sunday school classrooms around the world. Let us set the stage by examining some of the key events of David's life that culminate in Psalm 3. And speaking of Sunday school, children, we are glad that you are with us here in this room this morning as it is Family Worship Sunday I want you to know that you are loved and valuable members of this church. How many of you kids have this book at home? Yes, I see lots of hands up. That is awesome. Ask your mom and dad later on to read from this. There are three chapters in here that are devoted to David. Uh, I was going to say we had a copy of this at the back in the library, but... It is such a good book. It's flying off the shelves, and it is already not available. So after the service, parents, if you're looking for a great introduction to the Bible for kids, this is awesome. And So talk to uh, Paul or Kyle after the service, and I think they could probably uh, take some action to order some for you. That's the product placement part of the sermon. Also, children, there is a children's fill-in. If any of you didn't get it, put up your hands, and we can have an usher uh, put one of those in your hands. Alrighty. So David was anointed king, and then after King Saul died, David was finally established as king over all of Israel. David went out and fought Israel's battles, subdued Israel's enemies, and expanded Israel's borders. David's stature rose. His faith and devotion to the Lord knew no limit. So much so that it is said of David in Acts 13, verse 22, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. But then one spring... When the kings normally go out to war, David didn't. And his world shattered around him. The ever-faithful David dropped his guard and committed his disastrous rape of Bathsheba. This sin was compounded in its magnitude by the subsequent cover-up that ended with the innocent man Uriah murdered by David. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to be the voice of the Lord's rebuke and to foretell the deadly consequences of David's sin. If you would like to turn to Second Samuel chapter 12, we're going to read verses 7 through 13. And just keep your hands in there. We're going to be in Second Samuel a fair amount uh, this morning. 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through 13. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. In response to Nathan's rebuke, David repented of his sin and continued to walk in faithfulness with his Lord. David understood the mercy of God in forgiving his sin But David also accepted that he would suffer the earthly consequences of his actions for the rest of his life. In response to Nathan's rebuke, David penned the words of Psalm 51, which we read just a few minutes ago. Fast forward 11 years to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here we encounter one of the darkest moments in the biblical narrative the rape of Tamar. Hold on to your seatbelts here. David's firstborn son, Amon, raped his half-sister, Tamar, which resulted in David's third son, Absalom, Tamar's brother, hatching a plan to seek vengeance on Amon. Absalom has Amon killed and then flees to the house of his grandfather, the king of Geshir. Absalom remains there in exile for three years, unable to return to Israel because of his premeditated murder of his brother. Perhaps David was afraid of the public perception of being soft on crime, but after David had completed his time of mourning for his eldest son, Amon, He did not send for his son Absalom, although he longed to do so. Eventually, David was persuaded to bring Absalom back to Israel, but not Jerusalem. Finally, after two years living in house arrest, Absalom was able to secure an audience with King David and was permitted to return home to Jerusalem at last. However, instead of humbly returning to his hometown and accepting his father's forgiveness, Absalom began a campaign to undermine his father's authority in the eyes of the people of Israel. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to read verses 13 through 15, or question 13 through 16. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Four years after his return from exile, Absalom set himself up as king over the land in the city of Hebron. Reading uh, over at uh, 2 Samuel ch- chapter 15, verses 13 and 16, we read, And a message came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtakes us, and quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. All of this now brings us to where we find David. David hiding in a cave in the wilderness across the Jordan River, a fugitive being hunted and pursued by his murderous son Absalom with his army of men intent on establishing Absalom on the throne. And these are the words that David wrote. Turn with me to Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of any thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you shall strike my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people." Join with me as I pray. Father God, we just come before you grateful for this morning, grateful for the words of David in Psalm 3 that we uh, get the joy of looking into, Lord. I pray for myself as I speak, Lord, that you would just let me be a humble servant and just preach what it is that you have written that you would not let me add to it, Lord, or take away Um, anything that I say that is in error, Lord, I just pray that that would fall on deaf ears. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, that they would be encouraged, that they would be built up, and through the words of David, that they would see you magnified in your glory. So I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so whereas it is our job to understand that Psalm 3 is David's story, and that it is also our story, we must understand that David's despair is our despair to recognize. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. David is expressing the darkness of his mind and the apparent hopelessness of his situation as he is pursued like a dog by his son's army. David was a man of war. His military exploits were vast and, his, and songs were sung about his victories. In addition to the betrayal of his son, Absalom, Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor, turned his back on David and went with Absalom. And yes, I did have to Google how to pronounce that. In many ways, the betrayal of Ahithophel may have been even worse than the betrayal of Absalom because as the expression goes, we can't choose family. The betrayal of friends that we trust or advisors that we rely on. These wounds go deep when people that we trust betray us. Although you don't likely lead armies into war as David did, We also suffer greatly in this world. The sufferings of a woman desperately trying to hold a failing marriage together, the suffering of parents over a wayward child, or the suffering of one battling a debilitating illness are no less painful than the sufferings of David. But it is the kindness of God that we are given a window into David's suffering written from his own hand so that we can understand that when we suffer, We are free to cry out to God in our pain, in our hurt, and in the mess and hopelessness of our circumstances. As we look to David's suffering, what other biblical character comes to mind who suffered so greatly? Just as David suffered, Jesus himself suffered beyond all measure on our behalf so that we could relate to him. I'm reading in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus suffered horribly at the hand of the very people he came to rescue. Jesus, the only sinless man, was betrayed, beaten, whipped, mocked, and then went to the cross to save his people. Reading from Matthew 26, 47 to 50, we read, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, what do what you came to do. And then he came up and laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. The suffering and the betrayal of Jesus described here was foremost to fulfill the prophecies of Jesus, of who Jesus was, and how he would come to redeem his people out of their bondage of sin. But Christ's suffering also served another purpose. Though through Christ's suffering, we receive a high priest who understands and knows our affliction, one who has suffered one who understands the trial of living in this fallen world. We call upon a Savior who understands, one who can sympathize and offer real comfort. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. Now, as painful as our suffering is, we must understand its proper place. Physical suffering opens our eyes up to the brokenness of our fallen world. But most importantly, suffering forces us to look inward, where we must recognize our real foe, our ultimate foe, our sin and forsakenness before God. Jesus himself experienced this forsakenness on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsake means to renounce or reject something once cherished without intent to ever recover or resume. In the second verse of Psalm 3, David's enemies were calling out to David, saying, God had removed his anointing upon David as king because of his sin with Bathsheba. And David, while he had repented of this sin, in his darkest fear wondered if his enemies were correct, that he really was beyond the redemptive reach of God. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. All of humanity, you, me, everyone that we know, is stuck in this place along with David. Lost, alone, and forsaken. Without hope. We must recognize that David's despair is our despair. But David does not leave us there, and nor does God. As we read in Psalm 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And here we see that David's hope is our hope to claim. David, the man after God's own heart, the Lord's anointed of Israel, in his darkest hour still clung to hope. Now, hope is a popular word these days. In the events, coming out of the events of the last 18 months or so, you will hear people saying that hope got me through. I clung to hope. I never lost hope. In scripture, hope has a much different definition than how we commonly use this word today. Western people use this word associated with the concept of chance. I hope it does not rain today at the picnic, or I hope the Blue Jays win their game. We tend to use this word synonymously with the word wish. The Bible defines hope as the confident expectation of some future good because of the strength and character of God. God's people can claim to have hope because it is a hope based on something or, more specifically, someone This is the hope David grasped a hold of when he describes the Lord as his shield about me and the lifter of my head. The Hebrew word shield means armor, but it also is a reference to the protection of a king. A good king provides his people with protection from his enemies due to the king's military might, justice for his people through his wisdom, and food for people through the provision of land for his people to farm. David, as a military man and a king over Israel, would understand this word in both lights and is right to describe the Lord as both a shield in time of crisis but also a provider and sustainer for life. David fully recognized the state of his soul, his need for rescue, and his hope was firmly fixed upon the Lord. In the phrase, the lifter of my head, here we see a picture of one so downcast, so ashamed of their sin that they are unable to make eye contact. And the Lord, in his mercy, reaches down as one might to a child and with his hand gently raises the child's chin and looks lovingly into the child's eyes and says, your sins are removed far from you. Come, enter into the feast I have prepared for you. Just as David's hope was in the Lord, a hope fixed on the character and the promises of God, we too have such a hope. We too have a hope based on the character and the promise of God. But our hope is in a promise fulfilled, not a promise to come. Jesus is our hope to claim. As we recognize the state of our souls, our lostness, our hopelessness, it is helpful to be reminded of the words of David in Psalm 14, 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Knowing we we are powerless to fix our condition, in fact, that we are dead in our trespasses, God has made a way for you to be saved. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on the penalty of your sin by dying on the cross so that you might be made righteous before God. We read in Romans 3, 24 and 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And we read in John chapter 3, probably the most famous scripture verse of all time For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Hearing these verses is all fine and good, my friends. But what if you do not know this hope? What if you thought you were saved, but you are now not so sure? What should you do if you hear that your heart is pushing you to believe for the very first time? If this is you, pay attention to my words. Do not quench this stirring, but rather ask the question that should be on the forefront of your minds. What must I do to be saved? The answer is first, simply Believe God. Literally take him at his word. Believe it when he tells you through his word that you are a sinner. When God tells you that belief in Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from your condemnation, that you would accept this to be true. When God tells you that the only way to know lasting satisfaction and joy in this world is to walk each day with your savior Jesus Christ that you would believe it and do it. What work then is required to be saved? In John 6:29, Jesus answered them, "This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent." The him whom he has sent. Is Jesus. In addition to believing God, you must confess verbally with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Reading from Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why this emphasis on confession with our mouth? Just as the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are all masters of self-deception. We are eminently capable of leaving lie after lie. It is easy to believe a lie in our minds, but it is much harder to believe our own deception when we speak it aloud. As humans, we don't like these answers. We want to do, to act. We want to earn our salvation. We desire these things so we can satisfy our greatest sin, our pride. We want to say, I did this. I deserve this. All the religions in the world, with the exception of Christianity, teach that if we clean ourselves up, act the right way, follow all the rules, we can earn our salvation. This is so satisfying, and it is a wretched lie. We are saved solely on the basis of Christ's payment for our penalty on the cross. Where does the ability for you, a dead man, to cry out to God in your deprived state come from? It is nothing less than the unmerited and undeserved gift of God. Reading in Ephesians chapter 2, we see, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thus far, we have come to see how we must recognize David's despair as our despair, and to know that just as David fixed his hope on the Lord, we are to claim our hope in Jesus Christ. We are to see in verse 4 that David's prayer is our prayer to emulate. Psalm 3, verse 4 reads, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 3 is one man's deeply personal prayer to the Lord in his time of crisis. And through it, it serves as a model that we can use to learn and to, or to help us as we pray. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, prop, the popular prayer acronym ACTS. You all know how it goes. A is for adoration, the spending of time in worship and contemplation of God's character and glory. C, is confession, spending time in your prayer confessing your sin to God. T is thanksgiving, thanking God for how he has blessed you, protected you, or provided for you. And finally, S is supplication, asking God for your needs or your present concerns. And I'm equally sure you've all heard the corny jokes about how it would not go over very well with your wife if you started every conversation with uh, the Acts prayer model. However, I will defend this because there are times when you'll find that you are unable to pray, that you are unable to make an utterance to God, that you don't even know where to start. It is in these moments that following a tool such as Acts can serve as a springboard to prayer. Just as an aside note from personal experience, I would rearrange the ACTS acronym into CATS. Not because I particularly like CATS, but I have found that the single greatest barrier to prayer is my sin. I can sit down to pray, but I am unable. I feel no presence of God, nothing. But when I send then time before God... In honest confession of my sin, I find the floodgates usually open and prayer flows fast and naturally. As we read in 1 John verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is when we confess our sins, That we are cleansed from our unrighteousness, we are free then to enter into the throne room of the Lord in prayer. All right, so how we use Psalm 3 as a guide to prayer, we simply follow it as an example. Although David's confession of sin is not as obvious in Psalm 51, David does start off the third psalm with confession. Verse 1 describes his present state of crisis, but in verse 2, where David quotes his enemies scoffing at him in their belief that God has removed his hand from David because of his sin with Bathsheba, we know David has already confessed this in Psalm 51. Nonetheless, verses 1 and 2 show the laying open of David's heart, both his circumstance and the condition of that heart. Next, in verse 3, David is worshiping the Lord, acknowledging the greatness of God as he confesses the Lord his king. In verses 5 through 8, David expressed his confidence that God will hear his prayer and act according to his righteous character. I want you all to see, as we move through Psalm 3, how David starts out praying in fear, only able to see his enemies surrounding him, focused inward on his own problems, but confesses his lowly stature. He acknowledges the exalted nature of God and is then moved past himself into a place of confidence and trust in the Lord, where he concludes with loud worship to his God. David moves through this prayer from an inward focus to an outward focus on the Lord. He moves from small to big, from low to high. And this is the model for us as we pray. One final thing to observe is the little word, aloud This word is so important that it is present in each of the translations that I referred to while preparing this message The English Standard Version says I cried aloud to the Lord The New International Version says To the Lord I cried aloud The NASB I was crying to the Lord with my voice And the New King James I cried to the Lord with my voice With my voice. The importance of praying aloud to God with our voices must not be overlooked. This praying aloud is also not referring to a public prayer meeting, but rather to intimate prayer with the Lord. David is modeling here the fact that we should cry out to God aloud with our voice. This is not to say that silent prayer is bad. And there are times, indeed, when only silent prayer is appropriate. But something happens when we are laid bare before God, crying out with our voice. One thing I believe that is happening is we, come, we become more honest in our prayer. As we saw earlier in Jeremiah seventeen nine, where we feel that our hearts are deceitful above all, praying aloud helps us to be honest with God. And it also helps us to focus our prayers. With this in mind, this is my challenge to each of you this week. When you pray, do these things. Number one is pray aloud to the Lord. Do not pray silently. Do not mumble your prayers on your lips, but lift up your voice to the Lord as David exemplified in Psalm 3. Number two spend time in confession of sin. Be less concerned with your struggles or with your laundry list of requests, but rather, bear your soul to God in confession. And finally, end as David ended by worshiping your Lord in your prayers. In doing these three things, Look to see if God blesses you in this, if your prayers become more powerful, more effective, more intimate. As David prayed in this psalm, we see him moving from a place of inward focus and move towards a place of confident trust in the Lord. And this is exactly what happens to us when we cry out to the Lord with a loud voice. As David prays, what do we see As the result, in verse 5 of Psalm 3, we read, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. As David prays, he receives comfort and assurance, which allows him to rest for the night. And as David awakes in the morning, we shall see that David's deliverance is our deliverance to receive. As David poured out his heart in fervent prayer to God, he received peace, comfort, and assurance from the Lord. And as we pray, like David, we receive peace in which to rest. Some of you outdoor types or any of you who have taken survival training will be familiar with the rule of the survival rule of 3. This rule states that the human being can survive for three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. This rule is used as a simple reminder to prioritize our efforts and our actions in a survival situation. The one need that this rule does not address is our basic need for sleep. And I can tell you, as a person who suffers from sleep challenges, the great gift that a good night's sleep is. On days where I have not slept, I struggle to see God rightly. I perceive him, but dimly. But on days where I have been blessed with a great night's sleep, I am able to see God in glorious technicolor clarity. What David describes in verse five is the provision of sleep that our bodies were designed to need, but also the rest of the mind. Through the act of prayer, David answers or God answers David by giving him the ability to lay down his head and receive restorative rest. You will notice, God has done absolutely nothing to change David's circumstances. He is still hiding in his cave, still pursued by his enemies, but God provides him the peace so that he can find rest. A rest that makes no sense in the face of David's circumstances. We read in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In addition to answering David's prayer with immediate peace so that David is able to sleep, the Lord answers David's prayer with the confidence to face battle with his enemies. See, like David, we also receive confidence that we can stand in the storm. Reading verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 3, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David has been strengthened in his resolve to face his enemies without fear because he trusts in his God, who is his shield. You will notice that God has still not changed David's circumstances in any way. God has equipped David to face whatever may come with courage and strength, a courage and strength found in the Lord. Where David refers to the shattering of the wicked, the picture here is a wild animal, a lion rushing at you, and God shattering the teeth of this beast, removing its lethal weapons of death, so that though it may still be a formidable foe, David can stand before it without fear of death. When David cries out to be saved, this is not the cry of a drowning man in the sea, but rather is the victory cry for David's warrior king, a king that would rescue David from his deadly enemy, sin. This same warrior king also defeated death for us on the cross, Jesus Christ. And this is the promise is as true for us as it was for David. As we lean into God through prayer, through the meditation on his word, he promises to strengthen us and to equip us so that we are able to stand in the battle no matter what enemy we are facing. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand stand against the schemes of the devil. It is true that David is still calling out to the Lord for deliverance from his very real foe, Absalom. But David's confidence in the Lord stems from the, from the fact expressed in the final verse of Psalm 3. And that fact is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. With these concluding words in verse 8, David presents his thesis statement for the entire psalm that salvation indeed belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from God, by God, and for God's glory. The words of verse 8 make it clear that David confidently trusted that God would deliver him. As we look over the arc of redemptive history, we know that the Old Testament saints understood that God would send them a rescuer who would deal with their sin once and for all as it says in Genesis 3:15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and I will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This verse is foretelling the time when God would send his rescuer, the Messiah the son of David, Jesus Christ, to crush Satan and defeat death on the cross. And what is God's blessing on his people that we see in the last line of this psalm? The Lord promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through his seed. This is Jesus. Just as David looked forward to that day when the Lord would deal with his sin. We today look backward in time to that day when Jesus Christ, our Lord, went to the cross to defeat sin and death so that we would be raised to new life in him. As the Lord promised Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. First verse of the Gospel of Matthew says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. We can see that Jesus is the promised blessing on God's people. From Abraham to David to Jesus. In a dark cave, in the wilderness of the Jordan, we have seen a crushed and dethroned king crying out to the Lord in his anguish and fear, receiving comfort and strength from the Lord, who strengthened David to faith whatever may come. This same David stands in grateful worship to God, whom he would know would come through always. Just like David, we must recognize our need for deliverance. Just like David, we must lay claim to the hope of our risen Savior in Jesus Christ. Pray as David did and walk in the promise of our Lord in whom all salvation belongs.